0: It's an ancient principle. Did you know that it goes back even before the Bible? Even before it was written in the laws of Moses? For example, this, basically the same principle shows up in an ancient law called the, the Code of Hammurabi. from Ancient Mesopotamia. My family and I were, uh, were touring some of the sites in London earlier this week. We stopped at the British Museum, which is absolutely incredible. Worth a trip to London all on its own. They have a fragment of this code of Hammurabi one of these early law codes uh, regulating what had been a chaotic tribal warfare uh, expectation and it has this same basic law and I think this idea that, that action should have consequences that one thing should lead to another that if you're guilty of this you should have to pay for it shows up in culture to culture to culture across time and across places because it's in us Because it's rooted in us. It's built in. So once again, we're going to hear Jesus' words this morning in this Sermon on the Mount with a jolt. This morning we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. And Jesus, in short, says, don't resist the evil one. When you are mistreated, don't retaliate. What can he mean? Wouldn't that be dangerous if we obeyed him? If every time we confronted evil or someone mistreating us or others, we did nothing? If we just kept on taking it? Wouldn't that be dangerous for us? Dangerous for society, even? Maybe even dangerous to the offender? To just keep enabling them? What can Jesus mean? This morning, I want us to walk through this text together to think about how Jesus' words challenge us first to try to peel back some of the layers of difference between the culture in which Jesus spoke these words and our own that can keep us from recognizing what he's actually saying. We want, to, we want to make sure the challenge is clear first. And then we want to look at how Jesus' words help us. How we can take what he said and drill it in to what we're facing today. I want to begin by reading this short passage. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that? I'm going to read from Matthew five thirty-eight to 42. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other Also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is God's word. You can be seated. Maybe you noticed while we were reading that, that after Jesus states this principle, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. He gives us four examples that unpack what he means. We're going to spend most of the time under this, this challenge section, walking through this example by example. The examples are the key. But before we even get to the examples, I think I need to remind you of something. If you've been here in the last few weeks, you probably already remember. Jesus is here continuing a series of examples of a much bigger principle. He said at the beginning of this section of his sermon that if you want to be in my kingdom, you're going to have to have a righteousness that's greater than that of the Pharisees. And that's saying a lot because in this day, everybody thought the Pharisees were about as righteous as you could be. That's what it meant to be a Pharisee. It meant to be a scrupulous lawkeeper. Somebody who defined themselves positively and against others based on how good they were at keeping the letter of the law. Jesus says, Their righteousness isn't enough if you want to be with me. And then he gives us all these examples of what he means. Our passage this morning is another example. What you've seen, if you've been here the last few weeks, is that in each example Jesus gives, what he's showing about the Pharisees' righteousness is that it's a surface-level righteousness only. They were only interested in keeping to the rules so that they could actually use those rules to get what they really wanted. They didn't get pleasure from obeying God. They used laws that God had given to try to get as much as they possibly could for themselves. So rather than trying to embrace the laws fully, they tried to figure out how can I obey this law but then still do what I really want to do anyway. So for example, he he told them, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who looks on a woman with lust is guilty of adultery. Implicit in that is a pushback on the Pharisees who thought as long as I'm not sleeping around, then I can look and lust wherever I want. I'm free to do that. The law doesn't prohibit it. Or last week, passage that Shaka unpacked the oaths. He says, "Don't take an oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no." Well, the Pharisees had worked out this system where, as long as I'm not taking an oath while I'm looking at Jerusalem, then I can take an oath and, uh, and and then actually not fulfill it, and the whole oath will just be a cover for me getting what I really want. They're gaming the system. They don't want to obey. They want to get ahead. Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, righteousness never looks like that. He's not setting aside these laws. He's putting them in their proper context. And in this context, the law that he brings up, the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth command. This law was never meant to justify vengeance. It was given to restrain vengeance. In the ancient world, in this tribal context, when somebody did something to you, you didn't just do to them what had been done to you. You used that as a pretext for wiping them out. These laws were about holding you back on what you could legitimately do when someone mistreated you. Making sure that the punishment fits the crime. That you don't use it as an excuse to sort of get get whatever you want from them. These, this law was given not to individual people in Israel, but to the judges who'd be mediators between people. As they came and, and complained about what had been done to them, the judge would try to figure out something that made sense. Something that was balanced to prevent the person who was wrong from just going crazy and wiping out the whole family of the person who had done something wrong to him. Does that make sense? That was what the law was for. The Pharisees had taken it, though. And turned it not into something that restrains vengeance, but something that justifies vengeance. They'd taken this law and used it as an excuse to get theirs. So I think this backdrop will help us understand what Jesus is getting at in each of the four examples that he used. And and it helps us to see how he wants to challenge us this morning. I'm going to walk through the examples, but here's what you're going to see in each one of them. It's not that Jesus is setting aside this law of equal treatment. It's not like he's saying justice doesn't matter. The law is fine. Makes sense. It's better than what was happening before this law showed up. It's not that the law should be set aside. It's that Jesus' followers don't need to use it. He's saying that his followers don't have to go there. The law is legitimate. But in his kingdom other values matter more. What we're going to see in each one of these examples is this. In place of vengeance and self-protection, Jesus' followers respond with grace and self-giving love. In his kingdom, other values matter even more than justice. In place of vengeance and self-protection, Jesus' followers respond with grace and self-giving love. Now I want to show you this from each one of Jesus' examples. we are going to hit them quick. I think it will make sense once you see it. The first one is probably the most familiar. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek... This is in verse 39. Turn to him the other also. The key to knowing what Jesus is saying here... Is is that in Matthew he includes this right cheek reference. That's not random. That's not just an interesting detail... To make things seem more vivid and lifelike. In this culture... To be hit on the right cheek, where most people were right-handed, would mean that you took a backhand blow to the face. And in this culture, that was was not just to hurt somebody. It was loaded with symbolic significance. It was an insult. It was one of the most awful insults that you could give somebody. Like in the medieval times, slapping somebody in the face with the gloves, right? Oh, you slap me with the gloves? What time is the duel? It's, It's similar to that. The backhanded blow wasn't meant to hurt somebody. He's not talking about physical abuse here. When someone's just beating you senselessly, you just have to lay there and take it. When someone's insulted you, you give them the other cheek. Go ahead, insult me over here too. In this ancient time, one commentator noted, legal action is what you would take up after you'd been hit backhanded across the face. And that the penalties for that insult were twice as severe as the penalties for simple assault. In this culture, it mattered that much. But not to Jesus' followers. Not to them. Not in his kingdom. Jesus' followers set aside the right to personal vindication of their name and their reputation. They say, go ahead. insult me again. It echoes the stuff he said in the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Poor in spirit. Merciful. They care more about peace than about getting what's theirs. They rejoice in mistreatment because it's a sign of their blessing. This is not just any kingdom. There's something fundamentally unnatural, fundamentally supernatural going on here. Next example. Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This one's not quite as famous, probably because it's a little bit harder to figure out. I mean, it it doesn't sound... It sounds a little bit random. Again, it helps to know the context. When you know the context, the radicalism of what Jesus is saying here comes out really clearly. Jesus here is calling on his followers to give up something that by Jewish law could not be taken from them. So he's saying, somebody wants to take your shirt... You give it to to them, and then you also give them your cloak. He's, He's alluding to a law that's recorded in both in Exodus 22 and in Deuteronomy 24 that makes the outer cloak that Jesus is talking about an inalienable right. You see, in that culture, the outer cloak could be the difference between life and death. Especially for someone who was poor, this cloak was their protection from the elements when they slept outside, could serve as a pillow during warmer weather. It was like a home. I mean, it, it was something that was a basic possession. Something the law says could not be taken. So, in other words, what Jesus is saying here is that somebody takes you to court wanting your shirt, you give them what the, even the court couldn't take away from you. You give them, as one commentator put it, what the opponent could not have dared to claim. What that opponent couldn't have dared to claim, the disciple offers freely. Jesus' followers don't protect their reputations and they don't protect their most basic possessions. Third example. This one's in verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Again, that one doesn't make immediate sense, does it? It seems a little bit random. It sounds more like it belongs in some sort of cross-fit training kind of scenario. You know, like the people in the, in the park that are flipping tires and stuff with some guy shouting at them. God forces you to go to one mile, you just go another mile. Make your trainer happy. Not in this context. This is actually a a reference to a specific law in the Roman world whereby Romans, who had conquered Israel and so many other places, had a legal right to demand of the people they ruled their labor, their bodies, their energy, their time, anytime they wanted it. They could tell you, pick up my bags, you're coming with me, and you'd have to carry them. It's a symbol of their oppression. If you remember your uh, social studies classes and whenever it is you learn about the American Revolution, you'll remember that was one of the things that really got the, uh, the colonists here in America fired up against the British. They were conscripting houses, taking them over. It's similar in the Roman world. I actually get an example of it in the story of Jesus' crucifixion where Jesus is carrying his cross, trying to make it to the place where he's going to be crucified and he just loses his energy, he can't do it anymore, he collapses. And what do they do? The Roman soldiers grab somebody, a guy named Simon, out of the crowd and they say, you, carry the cross. Simon didn't have a choice, that was law. And Jesus is saying, this law that symbolizes everything that's horrible and inhuman about the oppression you're facing right now, you take it and not only do you take it, you give them even more. They ask for one mile, you go two. You show love even to the one who's oppressing you. Example number four. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In other words, Jesus' followers aren't insisting on an equal give and take. In their relationships. I mean the most surface level reading here. Is is of someone who needs money. Doesn't have any. And has to continually ask you for help. Jesus is saying you keep on giving. But the principle behind it. Goes way deeper than that. I think if we're honest. We've all probably had relationships. Where we felt like we were constantly pouring ourselves out. But we weren't getting anything in return. From other people. Like the person who's just needy, always asking. We probably felt justified in those situations for pulling back a little bit. And Jesus is saying, "You give to the one who begs. It's not a loan; it's a gift. You're not looking for equal treatment. You're looking for an opportunity to love." When somebody only ever asks, only needs, never reciprocates, Jesus' followers keep on giving. Hopefully now, this challenge that Jesus' words present to us, if we cut through the layers that separate his culture from ours and start to see what he really means, the challenge, radical as it is, hits us square in the face and we can't miss it. Jesus' challenge is that in his kingdom... If you want to be with him, you need to know that his followers set aside their rights. They don't insist even on what they have a right to insist on. They give it up. They respond to mistreatment not with vengeance or with self-protection, but with grace and self-giving love. That's how Jesus' words challenge us. But how do these words help us? What do we do with words like these? Maybe they sound impossible to you. Maybe actually your alarm bells are going off. Clang-a-lang-a-lang-a-lang. Because this sounds a whole lot like the kind of language that has been used to justify abuse of women throughout history or the oppression of minorities. It sounds like the kind of thing that carves out plenty of space for the powerful to just go and do whatever they want to do. Unopposed. And besides the danger in these words, isn't it impractical? I mean, if you were to give to everyone who asks, every time they ask you, how long before you wouldn't have anything? And and wouldn't that even be enabling something in them that's holding them back from growth? What if they're asking you to give them money that they can use to feed an addiction that's destroying their life? Do you give it to them then? What if your children... Want out from under the discipline that loving parents give to their children? Do you give them because they've asked? I'll come back around to these questions a little bit in a bit, but I want to focus with the little bit of time we've got left more on not on what these words can't mean, but on what these words must mean for us if we want to follow Jesus. Jesus. I think there are legitimate things that these words just can't mean and be squared up with, both with experience and with other things the Bible says. I want to focus on what these words have to mean for us if we want to follow Jesus. What do they, how do they help us? And I want to quickly show you three ways. Three ways these words help us, what they provide us, what they show us. Here's the first one. Jesus' words help us here Because they give us a test of what sort of person you are right now. A test of character, if you will. A barometer. Is your first instinct when you hear Jesus' words here to figure out how this text doesn't apply to you? To figure out what it what it doesn't really mean? Or are you first looking for how you can obey it? Are you more driven to a longing for grace, more grace, more patience? Are you convicted by how quickly your heart turns to retaliation and self-protection? By how hard your heart is towards those who've wronged you? That's a genuine question. I'd encourage you to ask this In groups, if you're in a small group here, this would be a wonderful question to take to your group and to ask together. What is my default reaction to this passage? Am I looking to get out from under its challenge? Or am I looking to pursue its direction for my life? I like the way one commentator, a guy named R.T. France, puts this. He acknowledges that Jesus' words here, like in several other places in Matthew, are a little bit hyperbolic. Jesus is using extreme language To shake you up. But here's what the commentator says. Instead though. Of dismissing Jesus teaching. As starry eyed utopianism. A proper response. To this challenging section. Is to ask in what practical ways. Jesus radical principles. Can be set to work. In our very different world. Think of these words as a test. And let them land on you. Let let them soak in. There's a second way that these words help us. Second thing that they show us. These words give us a window into the character of Jesus. At the very least, this text exposes that firm boundaries and self protection are far more important to us than they were to him. Several commentators note that when Jesus and Matthew records Jesus' words, the part where he's talking about being slapped on the cheek and turning the other cheek as well. He uses a very specific word for hit, not the generic word for like punch or, or just our word for hit, but word for slaps because he's wanting to echo Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, where the prophet looked ahead into the future to the solution of all of Israel's problems and named that solution the suffering servant one who would come and give up his own life for the sins of the people so that they could be different than what they were that passage describes this suffering servant as one who gave up his face to the hitting who gave his beard to those who would pluck it out and his back to those who would cover it with stripes When Jesus describes his followers the way he has here, what he's really saying is that you can look to his life for a model of what you can expect for your life if you want to be with him. And let's think about his life. What led him to come at all? Think of the passage that we read before we celebrated communion together this morning. Romans chapter 5. What did Paul say there? While we were still enemies... Hostile to God, wanting nothing to do with Him. Neglecting all that He'd given us. Neglecting His ownership over us. Pushing back against any legitimate claim He had over us. While we were doing that, Christ died for us. The message of the Gospel, friends, if you're not familiar with it, is this not that you need to clean up your act before you even think about coming to Jesus but that when you had nothing he came for you anyway when you were shaking your fist at him he gave up his body for you and all you have to do to claim that is recognize you don't deserve it and trust that he can make you new he can forgive you and give you life Think about Jesus' life. Paul describes his mission, gives us this overview of it. Think of his life in light of what he's calling for here. Think of how many times his disciples, those who were closest to him, his buddies, didn't believe in him. They didn't get it. They didn't know what he was about. They didn't trust that he could deliver. No matter how many times he showed his amazing power, they still didn't get it. And so he just kept on showing them. Kept on showing them. Think about the night before he died, what John describes for us in John 13. He's there eating dinner with all of his friends. He knows them by name, he knows their future, he knows what's going to happen in the next few hours. He knows that every single one of them is going to leave him when he needed them most. He knows that one of them is going to betray him, hand him over to be killed preferred a handful of coins to Jesus' life. And what did he do to those friends about to do that to him? He took up a towel and he washed their filthy, stinking feet. He did what even some servants didn't have to do by law. And he did it for them. Knowing exactly who they were. How's that for a non-reciprocated relationship? Then consider his passion. After his arrest, he was beaten just like he talked about here. Do you think he said these words without his own coming death in mind? He knew what he was talking about. They slapped him. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him. He took all their insults and said, bring it on, give me more. They hung him on the cross, and what did he do? He prayed for the ones who nailed him there. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And even after his resurrection, Thomas still doesn't believe in him. I will never believe, Thomas says, until I see with my own eyes holes in his hands and in his feet, until I can touch his side. I'm not believing it. And what does Jesus do to doubting Thomas? He shows up. Still don't believe? Okay, here's my hands. Here's my side. Put your hand there. And what does he do for you? I know what he does for me. Every day, In every good thing I've ever done. I expect to be praised for it. I want credit for it. Have you ever done anything good that you didn't seek approval or acknowledgement of? And yet have you ever done anything good that he didn't give you the power to do in the first place? Have you ever had a breath much less a meal or a job or a house or anything else that didn't come as his gift and yet have you ever had a day without anxiety worrying whether he's trustworthy with your future? Every day we ask him to go another mile and every day he just keeps showing up, keeps offering grace, keeps giving us more. What he's demanding here may be radical, friends, but it is nothing he hasn't done. Nothing he isn't doing for you today and every day. And if you want to be with him, then you've got to get used to the idea that you'll have to be made like him. That's the third and final thing that these words show us. They give us a test that helps us see where we are now. They give us a window into what kind of person Jesus would be. But they're also, like everything else in this sermon, they're also a forecast. They're also a promise of the kind of people Jesus will make us. They're a forecast of the character of everyone who's in his kingdom. Not the exceptional few, but everyone. And that means they're a forecast of what his power and his grace can do, even in your life. If you want to be with him, You've got to get used to the idea that you will be made like him, and that will mean loving others even when you're mistreated. Now, to return to some of those hard questions from before, it is definitely true that that, that figuring out when to give and keep on giving is a great way to love somebody. Versus a way of enabling somebody. That's a tricky thing to figure out. It's one reason God in his wisdom has saved us into a community. And not by ourselves. You've got to make full use of all of your relationships. You've got to seek counsel. You've got to ask your elders to listen and to pray. It is definitely true that these principles can be abused if they're misapplied. So rather than kind of go case by case, give you some sort of rubric for how to figure it out, it can't be done here, we're out of time. I just want to direct you to your community. That's why they're there. In relationships with people who know and love you, that's where you figure it out. I just want to leave you with, the, with one sort of overarching blanket principle. How, does this, how do these words help us? They show us what Jesus is going to make us and here it is. He's going to make us into people who see mistreatment as an opportunity to glorify God and to love one another. So, so, on our own, by by nature, our default is to see the mistreatment of other people as enjoining us in a sort of duty to respond. You know, think back to the duels. Oh, you insult my wife. What time is the duel? You get to choose the weapons. That sort of tribal instinct is in all of us. That's what comes natural. Reaction and overreaction. Almost like we have a duty to give people what we've been given. Like we can't escape it. This is the way it is. I'm sorry, you you, you played your hand. What am I supposed to do? What Jesus is saying is that in his kingdom, he sets you free from your bondage to giving as good as you get. He gives you a new principle for experiencing mistreatment from others. Mistreatment now no longer forces your hand into giving what you've been given. Mistreatment is now an opportunity. Because you're hungry for something other than what you were hungry for. All of us come built in with an appetite for justice, for revenge. Jesus gives us an appetite for righteousness. Righteousness. And the righteous want to glorify God more than anything else. They want to mirror the love that God showed them in Christ. Oh, you're mistreating me. This is an opportunity for me to show you a little something of what God is like. They know that righteousness, that all of the law is fulfilled in a love for God with everything that you are and in a love for others like you love yourself. Your mistreatment of me. Oh, this is an opportunity for me to help you be different than what you are. To love you towards another way. Sometimes wisdom may mean saying no, pulling back, redirecting, confronting. But the motive, the only motive that operates in those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness is a motive of love. And this, He gives you. It's the Spirit's rising beam. Father, please give this gift. Because we know from experience we can't love one another like this. We want to be a community where relationships aren't over just because mistreatment has come into them. Or some other power is at work that is beautiful to those who are watching us. We want to give you glory in the way that we interact with each other, especially when relationships are hard. And we don't have the power for that. So we pray to you for the fruit of your spirit. Build us up. Give us what we need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.